This is MIT Technology Review. In the weeks after the Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack, the FBI followed the money, and cybersecurity researchers followed the attackers. Together, they quietly helped new victims recover without paying, devastating the income of the ransomware group. It was a cat and mouse game, except there were no mice here, just cats chasing cats. Here's what happened. Darkseid did whatever they were doing, like hitting more and more victims until one faithful day they decided it would be a good idea to hit Colonial Pipeline. And that was pretty much a huge mistake. Darkseid attacked Colonial Pipeline on May 7th, 2021, shutting down their systems and demanding a ransom payment worth about $4.4 million at the time. Colonial paid the ransom the next day, but four days later, they were still unable to restart their operations. States of emergency declared in Georgia, Florida, Virginia, and North Carolina as pressure at the pump spreads up and down the East Coast. Tonight, the Russian computer hack of a major U.S. pipeline that does not supply our area of Florida triggered panic buying in Tampa Bay. Tonight, after days of long lines and empty pumps, a welcome sight for those desperate for gas. Lines of tanks. As the disaster dragged on, Darkseid posted an almost apologetic statement. Our goal is to make money and not creating problems for society. The message said. Just seven days after the attack, Darkseid announced that their servers had been seized by law enforcement and the group was disbanding. Most experts assumed they were going to take their ransom money, lay low, and reemerge with a new name after the heat from the colonial attack subsided. But then on June 7th, the Department of Justice made an announcement. Darkseid and its affiliates have been digitally stalking U.S. companies for the better part of last year and indiscriminately attacking victims that include key players in our nation's critical infrastructure. That's United States Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco. She's announcing that a judge in Northern California has signed a very unusual warrant allowing the FBI to seize a large percentage of the Bitcoin that was paid by Colonial. Today, we turned the tables on Darkseid. This is The Extortion Economy, a five-part series from Tech Review and ProPublica about the money, people, and technology fueling the ransomware epidemic. I'm Meg Marco. Part three, all cats, no mice. We're the investigators, right? At the end of the day, we are the ones who are supposed to be catching the bad guys. So my name is Elvis Chan. I'm the assistant special agent in charge of the cyber branch for FBI San Francisco. It's not a job he expected to have. He's a chemical engineer by trade and also spent about a dozen years in the semiconductor industry making computer chips. Yeah, it's actually a little crazy. I I did not take a very straightforward path here. So... I'm a first-generation-born here, Chinese-American. Let's just say being an FBI agent was not one of the acceptable professions to be in, but I'd always been drawn to public service, and so I asked my wife, like, what do you think? This is something that I, I would really like to do, and she was very supportive, and she said, go for it. And so a year later, I'm at the FBI Academy going, I can't believe that I'm shooting guns and kicking down doors. 
He says the department noticed an increase in cybercrime in March of 2020. That was around the same time the U.S. was entering the first of the COVID-19 lockdowns. So when everyone started teleworking, teleschooling, all of the remote things that we're doing, that, I think, really made a difference, right? At the FBI, I think we experienced a four times increase in the amount of complaints that we typically get online. And so it's, it's just like continued at that level. So the pandemic caused a rapid and haphazard shift to remote work, just as ransomware groups were already beginning to target larger companies that could afford to pay bigger ransoms. Now they're hitting companies that maybe people didn't even know about that really impact people's lives. And, you know, specifically Colonial Pipeline. I'm going to be honest with you, I had never heard of them, and I did not know that they controlled 40% of the fuel distribution on the East Coast. (laughs) And the way it always happens, and I joke, but I don't really joke, is it's always on a Friday afternoon (laughs) that we figure out this happened. Then on Saturday, Colonial went ahead and paid the ransom in the hopes of recovering as quickly as possible. The company didn't warn the FBI that they were going to pay, but they did tell them where they sent the money. So the FBI followed the ransom. According to court records, they followed the Bitcoin for 19 days on the public blockchain, and they watched it move from wallet to wallet to wallet. Blockchain technology is awesome, right? Because you have this public ledger. You have lots of different servers, thousands and thousands of servers all over the world. So if someone tries to change the public ledger, they're not going to be able to, right? Because there's going to be all of these other servers that have what the actual ledger should be saying. So... At the end of the day, it's mathematics. It's analytics and mathematics. And, uh, you know, experts will say, yes, like there are money laundering services, right? The term of art is a mixer or a tumbler. And so, yes, you have that. And, you know, what they, you know, what those types of services do is they're this black box where they ingest all of these different streams of cryptocurrency and then they scatter them out again, right? But at the end of the day, it's still a mathematical issue. Let's just pause to talk about how Bitcoin transactions work. The ledger is public and traceable, but in order to transfer Bitcoin out of a wallet, you need what is called a private key. It's essentially a password. So while anyone can follow your money if they try hard enough, they can't take it unless they have that private key. According to court records, the FBI had the private key for a specific wallet. And after weeks of following the money, they saw that 85% of the Bitcoin from the original colonial ransom had landed in that wallet. That's when they went before a judge and got the seizure warrant. But the question is, how did the FBI get that private key? And I I really don't want to get into the tradecraft of how we can get access to private keys, but there are ways, right? And, you know, like, I'll leave it to your imagination and all of the cool blockbuster movies that get put out to let you, you know, figure out different ways that we can do it. We were able to get the stars to align and we were able to get, you know, the blessings of, you know, senior level executives. And so, you know, we wrote out that seizure warrant, right? And we had to convince a magistrate judge here in the Northern District of California that, hey, like we have been able to track all of the funds from this colonial pipeline ransom that was given. And most of the funds are in this digital wallet. We would like to seize the contents. When people commit crimes and benefit financially, the government can seize those assets. But a seizure warrant is a seizure warrant, right? Like the the template for a seizure warrant is the same whether it's a Maserati from a drug dealer you're trying to seize or, you know, a fancy house that is, you know, ill-gotten gains from some 
you know, inside trader, seizure warrants are the same. It's, you know, I guess the particulars is what makes it different. The seizure of this ransom was the first under the FBI's new ransomware task force. And Chan says the process was kind of unique. However, we have done seizures before. I think the difference in the past is we would wait until we did the arrest and then seized all of it together, right? So when we're seizing like Bitcoin or other cryptocurrency from these bad guys, they are the fruits of many different crimes, you know, smashed together. But this was a little unique in that we were able to figure out where this ransom actually went and able to claw back most of it, right? So I, I think that's one of the main differences is typically we wait till the end. While the FBI was chasing the money, a team of cybersecurity researchers, including Fabian Wosar, were chasing Darkseid, or what was left of it. The bad guys in our story were laying low, but ransomware is incredibly lucrative, so no group stays away for very long. It's almost inevitable that whenever one large ransomware group sort of closes shop, like either these affiliates will go or like all the members involved will go and partner up with like other groups or, and this is exactly what happened with Darkseid, they just lay low for like a couple of months, maybe like one, two months, right? And then they will reappear, but under a completely different name. And that name was Black Matter. The design of the website and just the wording sort of look eerily familiar to the old Darkseid page. So very early on, even without anyone being able to take a look at the actual ransomware payloads to definitely confirm, there were a lot of rumors and speculation that this is going to be a rebranded Darkseid operation. It was at this point that the group made a serious mistake. They changed something about their encryption. So the team used that error to save victims' data without them having to pay. And the ransomware group Black Matter had no idea. At least not for a while. There was like no good reason for them to change their encryption scheme at all. But they did it anyways. And in the process, they actually made things much, much worse. And it took them quite a while to catch on. But there's like a party out there who's able to decrypt their ransomware without paying, paying any ransoms. Um, we had quite a run, to be honest. In just 60 days, the team helped dozens of companies save a lot of cash. He can't say how much, but it was a lot. It got so bad that we had a lot of conversations internally, whether or not we can even tell them. Because we completely decimated their income for the better part of two months. And we know that their affiliates were pissed at them and were actively thinking that Black Matter is scamming them because of how low the return was, like how low of an income Black matter generated during that time. Here's the way the group is organized. They take in the ransom payments and they use the money to pay the people they work with. But if they don't receive the payments, they have no way to pay what they owe. With black matter, it got so bad that their partners started to wonder if there was something fishy going on. Who would have thought that cyber criminals could scam other cyber criminals? <laughs> it's, I always wonder like, w what these people are thinking. And if, if they are like really sitting in front of their computers, yeah, but I thought we only scam the other people, not, not me, <laughs> right? 
Yeah, certainly not me. I, exactly. I'm on the team. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if Black Matter would have to rebrand again. Yeah, they sort of ruined, ruined their reputation. Sort of. I mean, not only that, just the fact that they got owned twice, right? They made mistakes twice. So here are these guys with this bug that allows them to decrypt the data without paying the ransom. And they want to use it to help people. But it turns out it's not so easy. In general, whenever any company is being hit by ransomware, like their paranoia is absolutely through the roof. So in many cases, either didn't get a reply at all, or we were being accused that we were the one ransoming them. Uh, some of them even threatened to like report us to the authorities, which is somehow like understandable, but it's also not making things easier for us. So he has a problem. The victims don't trust him or know who he is. And the FBI has a problem. They want to stop the bad guys, and they've been prioritizing that over helping the victims. So everybody has problems. In a lot of cases, whenever these ransomware victims were reporting the incidents to local law enforcement, these law enforcement agencies put them in touch with us, which when you think about it is actually like an ingenious way in like multiple ways. First of all, the company gets like something in return as well, right? It's also like a really great filter for companies like us because Obviously, ransomware threat actors have like a vast interest in figuring out which ransomware families can we decrypt, um, figuring out our methods, right? So whenever a ransomware victim shows up on our doorsteps, we have a rather elaborate like screening process to figure out whether or not these victims are actual victims. It's great when we can just tell them, yeah, please go to the FBI, file a report. And then the FBI will redirect you to us, which we are helping the FBI, right? The FBI is helping us. And ultimately, we both help victims. So it's like a really nice and interesting symbiotic relationship, really, that works out pretty much for everyone involved, which makes it such a great example for really effective cooperation between both the public and the private sector, in my opinion. It has like... Batman, Commissioner Gordon energy in a good way. Yeah. You also always have to keep in mind the interests of law enforcement aren't always aligned with the interests of the victim. The main goal of law enforcement is to catch the bad guys, which is not always the same as helping the victims, right? To be fair, I can understand why a company is like hesitant reporting incidents to local law enforcement because you are already in a, a very, very chaotic sort of situation. There are a lot of legal liabilities. There are usually like a crap ton of lawyers involved, attorneys involved, insurances who also bring their attorneys and lawyers, right? It's like a huge mess, really. And then, in addition, do you really want to risk to report it to the FBI, who then maybe show up at your company in order to seize a couple of servers for forensic analysis, making things even more chaotic in the process, but giving them like a real benefit that they can tell the victims, hey, if you report it, 
we can put you in touch with companies who can help you avoid paying the ransom it's like a real benefit and like a real incentive for companies to actually report these sorts of incidents so ideally the fbi wants to catch the bad guys what they're starting to realize is that ransomware funds ransomware if the fbi stops the ransom payments nobody gets paid so there's really no point we're doing a paradigm shift to impose risk and consequences onto these bad guys right now as opposed to uh, jacking them up and arresting them five years from now. But Chan wants ransomware groups to understand that just because they've seized the funds back doesn't mean the FBI or the arrest warrant is just going to go away. Our arrest warrants last forever. Like, they last forever. And so, you know, these guys, they get older, they think they're untouchable. They're going to want to leave Mother Russia at some point to go on a vacation somewhere nicer and warmer, maybe somewhere, you know, like where you're at right now, Megan. By the way, I was interviewing him from an island in the Bahamas. And the good news is lots of these uh, warmer climate countries have extradition treaties with the U.S. So that's one piece of it. But the other piece is if they know that we can seize funds, then they're going to be looking over their shoulders even more. And maybe it will not be as worthwhile for them. Because even if we seize the funds back, they've already committed the crime, right? We already have enough to get an indictment and an arrest warrant for them. And realistically, everybody knows that waiting for the bad guys to go on vacation isn't going to stop the problem. I think that the model of cooperation between the private and the public sector is probably the way to go here. Because I think we have created, like, especially with like the Black Matter cooperation, that this sort of cooperation can be incredibly effective. And the only way you will get rid of these groups or get rid of this problem is essentially to make it not profitable. Next time on The Extortion Economy, we follow the money. We look at why ransomware is profitable, where the money comes from, and who benefits. This series is produced by Emma Silicons, Tate Ryan Mosley, and Anthony Green. It's inspired by reporting by Renee Dudley and Daniel Golden from ProPublica. We're edited by Bobby Johnson, Michael Riley, Matt Honan, and Robin Fields. Our mix engineer is Eric Gomez, and theme music by Jacob Korski. The executive producers of the Extortion Economy podcast are me and Jennifer Strong. I'm Meg Marco. Thanks for listening.